I will be back here. I will be back here, and I will be back with another vengeance. Yeah, that is courtesy of Warren Sharp on Twitter. And, uh, man, he was speaking it into existence, like Mr. Sharp said. I will be back here, and I will be back here with a mother effing vengeance. And I think that really just speaks to this entire soul of this team. Um, Thanks for tuning in, guys, to the post-Super Bowl edition of the Red and Gold Standard podcast. We know it's been a rough couple of days. We wanted to take a couple days off ourselves and just kind of, you know, calm down and settle down and get our minds right. My name is Zach Hernandez. You can follow me on Twitter at Zach Hernan. You can follow the podcast at RGS Pod. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Anthony Perry. Anthony, how you doing? What's going on, Zach? What's going on, Faithful? It is your boy, Perry, back with another edition of the Red and Gold Standard Podcast. So before I get too emotional on this pod, dude, <laughs> as always, follow me on Twitter, Perry underscore 49ers. That's P-E-R-R-Y underscore 49-E-R-S. Yeah, it was uh it was a rough Sunday to say the least. You know, it was kind of like a tug of tug of war on my heart, man. It was like so damn close to getting there and then it just, you know, the the lid blew off it and it just totally went to sh- went to crap, excuse me. Um as you guys know, I'm sure you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't already know. The 49ers lost to the Chiefs in the Super Bowl, 31 to 20. Uh, with about six minutes left, they had a 20 to 10 lead. And then, you know, all hell broke loose and the Chiefs scored three touchdowns unanswered. Anthony, when you look back on Sunday and at the game, what stuck out to you the most? God, you know, it's hard to figure what really stood out to most. And I, I can go positive or I can go negative. And just to keep myself in the positive mood, I'm going to stick with the positives. Dude, this defense is so relentless. It really is. I couldn't believe they held the Chiefs to only 10 points in the first half. And my, quote, bold prediction that Mahomes was going to throw two interceptions happened. And I just had that kind of confidence that they were going to be able to give Mahomes hell, if you will. And they did. Defensive line was getting after Bosa all evening. The linebackers were flying around. The DBs were making plays, you know, up until the fourth quarter. But overall, the defense was on fire, and I couldn't say, or I could say, how does it? I couldn't say I'm any more proud of those guys out there because they really played their asses off. And again, I know 31 points doesn't look that good, but I'm discounting the final touchdown when it's really kind of over at that point. And, you know, in the fourth quarter when everything fell apart, I mean, the offense didn't give the defense any time to rest. Garoppolo throws an interception. They go back out there on the field. They're already gassed and winded, and that's all it takes to lose. But overall, Zach, I'm so happy with the defense. I could not believe they held the Chiefs to 10 points in the first half. And in my opinion, they basically held them to 24 points. Obviously, they couldn't get the job done near the end, but they were relentless. They were hungry. They were fierce. And I I didn't even expect them to only give up basically 24 in my opinion i i thought it was going to be like a like a 30 to 35 game you know it was going to be pretty high scoring and i guess you can say the chiefs scored a lot of points but i'm i'm still discounting all that crap that happened in the end dude but overall i can't stress this enough the defense was phenomenal they really were everyone's gonna blame the defense everyone's gonna say oh the defense didn't tighten up when they needed to blah 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 well you can't expect them to be perfect every single drive against one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL when your offense isn't even getting the job done and you lose as a team. I get it, but they go hand in hand with each other and each unit has to help each other. And the offense wasn't helping the defense at all. So overall though, the defense did what they had to do. In my opinion, it didn't go as everyone expected, obviously, but if I had to take away one bright spot from this loss, it was the defensive unit as a whole. Yeah. It was amazing to see them force Patrick Mahomes into two interceptions when he hadn't thrown one all postseason. And it really just was that pressure and the DB stepping up, making plays, the linebackers, uh, Fred got one. And it was just great to see. I I really couldn't believe what I was watching. Uh, The defense was on fire. Now, you went with something positive. Unfortunately, I got to balance it out here at the red and gold standard. I'm going to go with something negative. And to be honest with you, I think the the thing that really stuck out to me when I look back 
And when I, you know, will always look back because that's what you do in a Super Bowl loss. You just, you know, I still look back at the loss against the Ravens and think what if. But man, with this one, I really, really think it's wasted opportunities. And the 49ers, the offense's inability to move the ball when it mattered most. Um, when they got that second interception and then they went three and out. It just blew my mind. They were not able to come up with any points. I mean, a, a field goal, even a, a touchdown, but it's even a field goal would have put the dagger in right then and there. They had all the momentum in the world. Uh, the defense just pretty much gave them the game on a platter. And they essentially said, you know, no thanks. And they gave the ball right back. And man, that just, right when that happened, I, I just thought, shit, you know, this is going to be, this is going to be tough because... They could have really put the game away right then and there, and they they weren't able to do it. Um, I'm not sure why Kyle Shanahan went away from the run. And looking back on the game and on those plays, the reads were correct. However, you know, passes were tipped, uh, too high, whatever it may be, overthrown. But the thing is, is that you can't, Those that's what happens when you risk passing it. And when you're averaging, you know, five, six yards a carry, or even four yards a carry if you take away Debo's runs, I think they still would have had a better job running the ball, done a better job, excuse me, running the ball, chipping away at the clock and picking up yardage at the first town at the same time, excuse me. And they just weren't able to do that. I think that was ultimately the deciding factor in this game. You know what's crazy too, dude? What's crazy also is that the first carry when the Niners were down 24 to 20, Mostert ran for 17 yards. 17 yards, dude. That was Mostert's first carry when the game was not out of hand, but basically the Niners' last breath to win. And Mostert's first carry goes for 17 yards, and I couldn't believe it. I thought, okay, this is it. There's still a minute and a half left on the clock, or I think it was three minutes even. I forget what it was. But the point being is Mostert ran well. He had that big run, and you thought, okay, the Niners can really establish the ground game here. And I don't know if Shanahan just got into his own head or what, but the fact that he strayed away from the run game and put the ball in Garoppolo's hands when – you can comfortably say that it can be kind of risky when Garoppolo is throwing it because we know how he is. But when the run game is essentially moving better than the pass, in my opinion, it's really surprising and really shocking to me that Shanahan just strayed away from it. And I couldn't believe it at all. Yeah. And, you know, that's a great point. That first run by Moster, I remember thinking, oh, man, all right, like this is going to this is going to go well. Um I had flashbacks to the New Orleans game. I had flashbacks to the uh, second uh, Los Angeles Rams game. I was just had all these, you know, when when the Chiefs scored that touchdown to put them up, uh, I think it was 24-20. Yeah, 24-20. I remember looking at the clock and I was standing there with all my family and I said, they left too much time on the clock. Jimmy's about to do it. Kyle's about to do it. I have no doubt in my mind they will get it done. And, you know, they busted off that first play, like you said, for 17 yards. And I thought, there it is. Just wait. Just wait and see. I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, they had all three timeouts left. And I had no doubt in my mind. And, man, he just went away from it. I, I, I honestly couldn't believe it. And I understand, you know, the time, you're, you're in a rush. But at the same time, you had all of that time and all of your timeouts. And you needed to make sure that there was no time left on the clock to give the ball back to Mahomes and the Chiefs. So I really can't speak to what his decision-making, you know, what the the logic behind those decisions was. It it hurts, man. It really does. And part of me actually thinks, was he trying to put it on Jimmy's shoulders for a reason and kind of disprove all these narratives that he doesn't trust him and that Jimmy isn't the guy Maybe I'm thinking too much into it. Maybe I'm not. I don't know. It's just something that comes up uh, when I'm looking back on the game. Um, and that that was going to be my, my second question here, Anthony. Why wasn't Mostert more involved but in the beginning of the game? He didn't start. Coleman got the start again. Why do you think he didn't go with him after his historic performance in the NFC Championship game? I don't know. Obviously, I'm not a professional, let alone a super football expert. So I still have a lot to learn. But I don't know if it's one of those things where Shanahan was maybe trying to play mental games with the Chiefs, trying to establish Tevin Coleman so 
because obviously when Tevin Coleman is out on field versus Mostert or Jeff Wilson or Brita, you play him differently. You play the entire running game differently based on the running backs that are out there, and that's just football. And when you have Tevin Coleman, whose skill set is somewhat similar to Mostert's, I mean, they're both they're both fast. They're both one cut. Coleman is a little bit more of a bulldozer. Mostert is obviously a little bit faster overall. But they play into each other hand in hand. And when you're using Coleman out there like that, I don't know if it's just Shanahan trying to establish some kind of mismatch or trying to get into Spagnolo's head, you know, the Chiefs' defensive coordinator, or whatever game plan might call for. And when, when you go about it like that, you think, okay, well, obviously you want to trust Shanahan. But when, we've seen Tevin Coleman struggle, and he struggled a lot between weeks, what, 13 and 15, or after the Panthers game in that time. And that's when Mostert really shined. And it's the Super Bowl. When it's the Super Bowl, dude, it is the biggest and most important game of the season. And the fact that he didn't give Mostert the ball enough, in my opinion, and I think he finished with, what, 12 or 13 carries, which is a decent amount. But it felt like that even when Tevin Coleman and Jeff Wilson were out there, you didn't really think that they're going to break one off like Mostert does. And I think that's huge. I think that really plays into how defenses play as a whole. When you see Coleman and Jeff Wilson, you think, okay, we have a better chance of stopping the run versus Raheem Mostert. And that can make or break some offenses. That that can make or break some drives ultimately. And when something like that happens, you win or lose, point blank. And the fact that Shanahan didn't really give Mostert enough of a chance, in my opinion, I think that was one of the biggest reasons as to why the Niners lost as a whole. Game plan can call for the reason. Situation can call for for the reason. But to not give Mostert, I would say, what, 70 or 80% of the snaps, in my opinion, I think that was one of the biggest reasons why the Niners couldn't really get going on offense for the most part. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that. And, you know, I'm not sure if it was something like you know, he was trying to keep him rested or maybe seeing what Coleman had and maybe he had the hot hand this game and he was trying to, like you said, uh, throw the Chiefs off because everybody was talking about Mostert going into the kickoff. But I really don't know why he wasn't more involved. Um, I think we've seen in the past that he's kind of more effective against these, you know, physical upfront defenses that the Chiefs have, their front seven. And he really has that, you know, not that downhill running style, but more that cutback, really, really fast running back, hits that second gear extremely quickly. And I think his style was really suited for this game more so than Tevin Coleman's. And it was just kind of mind-boggling to me. And I know he has his scripted plays to come out. And the Niners look great. They looked pretty good to start. Um, And then things kind of calmed down. And, you know, both teams were playing well, but it was just kind of like, I wanted to see more Raheem Mostert because he's proven time and time after again, uh, excuse me, time and time again, that he can get the job done. Um, he can make the most out of his opportunities. He can definitely get the job done. And I thought he should have been their, their main back. And I mean, like you said, he was at the end of the day. He had 12 carries for, I think, like uh, 54 yards or something like that. Uh, 12 carries, 58 yards, and a touchdown. But it just... It's not enough, man. 12 carries for your lead back. Um, I was hoping he had 20, 25 carries at least. And I think that he needed that sort of number to have for the 49ers to win. So that was kind of something that stuck out with me as well, that he kind of took a while. He was used rarely and not enough. um, Or excuse me, he way too late and not enough. And that's going to haunt me. Um, Anthony, win the game was 20 to 10 and it looked like the Niners were going to win there's roughly six minutes left in the fourth quarter if things remain as such who is your MVP shoot dude I don't you know we saw Nick Bosa finish with what 12 pressures and I don't know if the Niners would have won theoretically I don't know if that would have been recognized by the people who give the MVPs because at the end of the day 90% of the MVP awards goes goes to the quarterback but with the way the game played out, and if Garoppolo hits that throw at the end, you know, the Sanders, the one he just overthrew, Garoppolo is definitely MVP if they win the game. But if I had to think outside of the box, I definitely thought Bosa might have had a chance because he was just a one-man wrecking crew out there, dude. Bosa is phenomenal, an absolute beast. And 
you don't expect rookies to go out there and perform at that kind of level. And I know he's a second overall pick, obviously, but shoot, I I, I don't know. I, it would have been Bosa, but and I know I'm looking at the end result because I'm still pretty salty about that. But when the game was twenty to ten. Man, I think I still roll with either Garoppolo or Bosa. Garoppolo was doing pretty good for the most part. Bosa was already being impactful. The entire defense was clicking, but if anyone stood out on defense, it was Bosa, and Bosa would have deserved the award, honestly, just as much as Garoppolo. Okay. I like those two options. Um, Like you said, it's, it's mostly a quarterback award. It's hard for any other player to get the quarterback, or excuse me, the MVP. For me, I think um, I would have gone with a, not another rookie and Debo Samuel, and he kind of had more more of an uh, explosive first half than the second half. They kind of went away from him, and I don't really know why because, I mean, he was averaging like 17 yards a carry, and that was just, you know, he was he was taking it to them. He was catching the ball, running the ball, whatever whatever the Niners asked of him, he was getting it done. And I, I I think if they hold on and they win that game, he's definitely a top contender for MVP. And I want to say he would get my vote. Now, also, someone else on the flip side, I know you kind of gave two answers, so I'm going to cheat here and give two answers too. Fred Warner. Um, I heal, you know, He finished the game with seven total tackles, but that interception that he had, uh, I think that could have proved huge. Um, if the 49ers were able to drive down the field and stick that dagger in with another touchdown, I think his interception would have been the real, real turning point of the game, and it would have sealed it for the 49ers. Um, unfortunately, as we all know, they weren't able to do that, but if that was the case, I could easily see him getting that um, that, that award. Now, this is going to be a controversial question, Anthony. It's been discussed since... The game ended Sunday. How much did the officials impact the game when everything was said and done? Uh, you could say in a negative way, in a positive way, in favor of the Chiefs, in favor of the 49ers, not at all. What do you think? So if I wanted to do a solo podcast by myself just on the referees, man, I would because I would take up an hour of this podcast alone talking about the refs. So I will try to keep it as simple and as forward as possible. Referees impact the game no matter how you look at it, whether they call one foul, 10 fouls, 20 fouls, no fouls. It doesn't matter because whenever that foul was called, it can dramatically alter the game in some way. And whether it's big or whether it's little, it makes a huge difference. The big ones are like Kittle's OPI, um, the, the non-call on Jimmy Grapple getting hit in the helmet or Grapple getting shoved out of bounds. Or it's the little ones too, like Bosa getting held, Buckner getting held, wide receivers you know pushing off, things of that nature. And it's the things that are missed that impact the game just as much as the things that are called. And one big thing is that the fact that the Chiefs led the league in holding on defense and didn't get called for a single holding in the game, period. Offense and defense. I've, it's remarkable. It's remarkable that a team that's pretty much the worst in the league when it comes to that doesn't get called for it once. And I don't know if that was because Shanahan called the holding on to that referee, you know, in the Green Bay game when Kittle got held, or if this just the NFL saying, okay, we need to really just let loose and let these guys play. But I don't think that's the case. I think there's a lot of conspiracy theories that go behind it. And if you want my honest opinion, I think a lot of these sports are, I think a lot of them are rigged, honestly. And look, it's entertainment. It's what the people want. And if it's anything to protect the NFL's legacy or protect the image or make the image look good, whether that's Andy Reid finally getting his glory or poster boy Patrick Mahomes getting his first of what will likely be many Super Bowl wins, it's things of that nature that that really develop the NFL's image and look as a whole. I mean, look, who... What would be more popular to the general audience? And I mean the general audience. The balanced, not too many star-studded guys on the Niners. And I mean Bosa's a star, Kittle's a star. But they don't, I don't know, they don't have that Mahomes-type character. You know what I mean? They don't have 
the guy who seeks all of the attention, the guy who really takes in all the glory like Mahomes does. So my question to you, though, is who would the NFL rather want? The poster boy child who looks good, who plays like better than anyone else they've ever seen in the league, or the well-balanced team that's pretty outspoken and just plays football? And obviously you're going to go with the former, the first answer. And that's just how it is. And if the NFL is going to try and put out that image, there's no way in my mind that Goodell or whoever it may be or Al Viveron tries to enforce these rules or tries to emphasize to the referees, hey, give the Chiefs any type of advantage you possibly can. And I'm not saying they did. I'm not saying that happened. But it's the fact that there are so many bad calls and missed calls. There's no way you don't think like that. You know what I mean? There's no way that you don't go after this game and say, how can they not call anything when the Chiefs led the league in holding? Or when you rewatch the game, it's clear that these penalties happened against the Niners and they didn't get called or they missed the calls. And here the Chiefs are playing absolutely perfect football, but the Niners are the ones that get penalized. I, I don't see how that works, man. It's just totally backwards to me. Totally backwards and just shocking that the NFL has almost very little integrity when it comes to honesty and just letting teams play football and making the proper calls, man. Yeah, it, it, this is going to be a hard question. And and you know what bugs me is that you can't discuss this calmly, um, or at least you can't be viewed as kind of just discussing this. And for some reason, every other fan of every other team who didn't even make the playoffs want to come out and say, like, oh, like, you know, look at the sore loser. Like, you know, he can't just accept that his team lost. It's like, dude, if I'm watching two teams I don't give a shit about and I see that they, the refs impacted one team more so than the other, then I, I, I'm just going to call it like it is. Like, I see it. Same way as if one team is mine and I watch it and it happens again. I'm going to call it like I see it. And the the fact of the matter is... The umpire in this game took the day off. Uh, he took the day off. Like you said, the Chiefs and the Ravens were the two teams that led all playoff teams in holding. How can you pass 42 times and not have a single holding called on you? That's just on offense, not even on defense either. Um, and it's just, you know, when it's a, it's, you hear it often. It's a penalty that can be called on every single play, yet it happened 42 times and you didn't call it once. It just blows my mind. Um, and it really, really impacted this 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 game negatively for the 49ers. Uh, like you said, that third and 15 where Mahomes was able to stay in the pocket and find Hill downfield, and I think that's the drive that they were able to uh, cut it down to 17-20. to 20. And then the very next drive, they cut it to they took the lead twenty four twenty. So you know Nick Bosa was crashing right through that pocket, and he was about to crush Patrick Mahomes when I believe is Eric Fisher just totally essentially puts him in a headlock. And look at that, Mahomes has plenty plenty of time to throw it straight to Hill, and it's not discussed. At least in the game, I saw on ESPN afterwards they were talking about it, which is somewhat new. Um, Unless it's a very, very controversial call that everybody saw and everybody's talking about. You don't really see media outlets discussing it. But I got to give them credit. I did see them discuss it and say this was a blatant foul that was missed. And I saw um, Michael Lombardi on the Pat McAfee show over on Barstool. And he was saying, you know, uh, there was a clip of him before the Super Bowl. And he, he, he said straight up, the only way the Chiefs win this game is if the referees do not call holding because their offensive line cannot match up with the 49ers defensive line straight up. There's no way that they can do that. And then they had him on after the Super Bowl, I believe it was yesterday, and he goes, who would have thought that they actually took the day off and they didn't call holding once? It, it blew his mind. And he just said, if you would have told me that they passed it close to 45 times and not one holding penalty was called, I would have told you, you might as well have Kyle Shanahan walk over to the refs and say, give them the trophy right now because there's no way we can win this game if that's the case. Um, and not only that, but like you said, Jimmy was hit twice, I want to say, to the helmet and then none of that was called. 
and I know if you're a Chiefs fan for some reason listening to this podcast or any other fan listening to this podcast, there were calls on both sides. You could definitely make that argument. However, the calls that were missed against the 49ers were not on crucial plays or at least as crucial plays. They were not uh, game-changing moments like the Bosa hold where he could have had the sack on 3rd and 15. You know, really, really change momentum in the game. Um, stuff like that. Or, you know, Jimmy getting hit late on or in the helmet on third down. That would have extended that drive. Things like that. It just It's really frustrating to see because you hate it in any game. If you're a fan or not of that team, you hate seeing it come down to the referees. And that's where I'll kind of draw the line. I don't think that the 49ers lost this game strictly because of the referees. I think they lost it because of their inability to move the ball at the end when it mattered most and put the dagger in. But the referees did not help. I'll tell you that right now. It's hard enough to beat a good team that made it to the Super Bowl as it is. It's even that much harder, almost damn near impossible, to beat a good team like the Chiefs and the referees at the same time. So I think I'm just going to leave it there because, like you said, we can each speak an hour on this and we probably still feel like we have more to say. Um, Anthony, we talked about the defense and how they were able to kind of pressure Mahomes into throwing two interceptions. He hadn't thrown a single interception all postseason, like I said earlier. What did the 49ers defense do differently to force him to throw two on Sunday? So the first interception, which was Warner, was a really smart play. I think Warner's job was the hook curl in the middle of the field. So basically he's reading anything that might have been a slant, might have been a curl from the tight end of the middle or even a hook. And when no one was there, he just sunk back. And I don't think Mahomes saw him drop back. And Mahomes just threw it right at Warner, right between the numbers. And it was a really bad throw and it was a really bad read by Mahomes. And I think Aikman was saying, oh, Tyree Kill is supposed to cut to the post or something like that. And Mahomes just made a bad throw and blah, blah, blah. Well, what he didn't talk about was Warner being right there at the right time and understanding what his priority was and what his job was. And he fulfilled that entirely. And then the second interception, which I think was a target on Tyreek Hill also, was just a drop. But I mean, hey, Tavarius Moore was there at the right time. I think Hill was already double covered, so Mahomes was kind of forcing it in there. But even when Mahomes is forcing balls in like that, it's just like you know that means the back end of the coverage, whether it's Mosley or Sherman or Tart Ward, they're covering their guys and they're doing what they're supposed to do. Joe Woods, before he supposedly got hired by the Browns, did a fantastic job of coaching the DBs this year. But Robert Sala was the mastermind behind all the play calling, behind everything that went down. And he called a really good game. And I know I opened this whole podcast with the defense did fantastic. And I'm going to continue to emphasize that because I really think the defense did fantastic. It's it's hard when your offense isn't helping you and you got to be out there longer than you need to be. And I don't blame him. But overall, though, I think the coverage, it, it felt like Shan, or Shanahan, it felt like Sala was doing a lot of disguises, a lot of dropping back linebackers, a lot of blitzing linebackers. And he'd just go back and forth between the two things. And again, just disguise coverages and give Mahomes these looks that he might not have seen on film or just any way to confuse him. And even when he wasn't throwing, you know, decent passes, I felt like Mahomes' throws were offline. They were right at a DB or they were right at a DB's feet or wide receiver's feet. And a lot of that can be credited to the defensive line too. But even when the pressure wasn't there, the coverage was still holding up for the most part. And it just made Mahomes' day hell. And Quite honestly, dude, I don't think he deserved the Super Bowl MVP. Damian Williams did, even though he got that garbage time touchdown. Damian Williams still had a pretty solid game for the Chiefs. But hey, like I said, it's the quarterback's award to win. Mahomes won it. But he didn't have the type of game I think that everyone thought he would have statistically. And look, he passed for a couple touchdowns. He threw for, I think, over 300 yards, completed over 20 passes. But he had, what, 42 attempts? And... You don't see Mahomes barely make it over 50% or 60%. Usually he's around like 65 to 70. So to see that the coverage and the linebackers were just all going hand-to-hand, it it was really impactful against him. And I think the defense did give Mahomes a lot of fits. He hadn't seen a defense like ours in the playoffs at all. And so when he comes into this, it's it's almost like running into a wall, you know? And that's just what the defense was. They were just a brick wall that unfortunately got broken down because of their own team. Yeah, I think 
more so also the fact that Mahomes had been playing much softer defenses uh, in the Texans and the Titans the previous two weeks as well. Um, their total, uh, I think, defensive rating and the yards per game that they were allowing were something like 29th and 24th. So the 49ers, who were second and first in respective categories, were just a much tougher defense. And not only that, it all starts up front. Um, the, 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 the defensive line, the fr- front seven, sorry, I'm kind of stumbling over my words here. The front seven and mainly the front four were constantly able to get pressure. I mean, you said it yourself, Bosa had 12 pressures, which is just an unreal stat for a rookie in the Super Bowl. But he had 12 pressures by himself. Uh, I think Defoe had one and a half sacks. Earl, Mitch, Earl Mitchell had half a sack. The, the the ability for the 49ers to disrupt Mahomes and kind of speed up his throwing and make, speed up his decision-making kind of forced him into a couple of errors. And, man, there was almost a third interception. I don't know if you remember, but Quan Alexander dropped it. It went straight into his hands, and he dropped it. Uh, but I think a lot of it has to do with that. He hadn't really been pressured in the way that the 49ers were able to get pressure on him. And they just forced him into some bad throws and, and rushed uh, decisions. And they were able to capitalize on him. Obviously not 100% on the other side of the ball with the offense. But the defense was able to get get the ball and give it back to the offense. And you know then it was up to them to, to capitalize. Uh, moving on to the offense. There will be a lot, a lot of talk and speculation about Jimmy Garoppolo and his performance. What did you think about his performance on uh, on Sunday? Well, he played good football for three quarters. <laughs> That's for sure. He played really solid football for three quarters. I think after the third, he was just near 200 yards. But I think he was, what, 20 of 22? Some really good number. Uh, a couple touchdowns, I believe, or even one touchdown, one pick. But the point being is that Garoppolo was fantastic for three quarters. And then the fourth quarter came, and he ran into a wall. In the fourth quarter, 3 of 11, 36 yards, an interception, 2.8 passer rating. Garoppolo missed Kittle twice. He might have missed Sanders once. He missed Bourne once on a high throw. He probably missed his checkdowns, and I can go on and on and on. But the point being is that Garoppolo did not play well in the fourth quarter. I don't know if it was nerves. I don't know if he was just not feeling it it could be anything but Garoppolo just he it really shocked me because throughout the whole season we had seen Garoppolo lead these amazing comebacks against the Rams the Saints the Cardinals twice the Seahawks even and to watch this kind of performance that he put up in the fourth quarter it was it was a lot of the reason why it made this loss that much worse is the fact that we had this quarterback who was fantastic in the fourth quarter who had led comeback drives all year long and and it's not that he didn't do it well it is that he did didn't do it but it's that he didn't do it and he when he tried to do it it was so poor and i mean it was piss poor of a performance man and i'm gonna blame the offense as a whole though it's not just garoppolo i mean you rewatch the film, wide receivers weren't getting good enough separation. Even when he was missing guys wide open, the guys still weren't separating. Shanahan's play calling might not have helped them too much either. And you just lose as a unit. You really do. But it starts with the head coach. It starts with the quarterback as well. And the fact that Jimmy Garoppolo just laid an egg in the fourth quarter, and I mean a brown, a brown bad egg. It was a rotten egg that he laid. I, I was shocked. I was really shocked. And I don't think the fourth quarter should describe his performance as a whole because, again, through three quarters, he was solid. He was the exact same Jimmy Garoppolo we had seen when the run game was clicking and everything was going pretty smooth, and the wheels just fell off the bus, and he didn't get the job done. I don't know if it's because it hit him so fast and he wasn't ready, and I think that could be it, is that through three quarters, the run game and the pass game were going hand-in-hand. It was pretty balanced. And then when you're down in the fourth, all of a sudden it's pass, pass, pass. And I don't know if Garoppolo was just mentally prepared to take it on. And again, it happened so fast. I mean, they had a 10-point lead with six minutes left. And then with three minutes left, they were down by four. And all of a sudden you need to pass to get back in the game and it just doesn't work out. And if it was the type of game where Garoppolo was, say, already at 
25 to 30 passes going into the fourth, I could understand that Garoppolo would have a better mindset of passing in the fourth. But the fact that he was barely at 20, he wasn't really used much for passing unless it was pretty much play action, really kind of set the tone for the passing game as a whole. And preparation is key. It really is. I'm not saying Garoppolo wasn't prepared, but when it hits you that fast, you never know what could be going through his mind. And quite frankly, I just, man, I just, I I don't know. I don't think Garoppolo was ready. Uh, Again, the sport happens fast. Everything happens fast. And these guys are professionals. They obviously get paid like professionals and you don't expect them to put out performances like Garoppolo did in the fourth quarter in particular. So whatever was going through his mind, man, it must have been really bad for him to play that bad in the fourth. Yeah. Like you said, it it, it was just so mind-boggling because he hadn't had that sort of poor performance. The offense as a whole hadn't had that sort of poor performance with the game on the line in the fourth quarter when trailing. I mean, all we were hearing going into Sunday is that, you know, Garoppolo is, you know, leading all these categories uh, when trailing, you know, really high pass rating, extremely efficient, you know, touchdowns, no interceptions. And we didn't see that. And I'm going out on a limb here. And this is 100% speculation by Zach. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say he was concussed. Um, And I'm not making an excuse for him. But I actually do think he took a pretty hard hit to the head. Uh, There was one where he was down for like 7-8 seconds real time before getting up. And I loved how the broadcast team just completely ignored it. It wasn't discussed. It wasn't talked about. And he went right back into that huddle and he kept playing the game. Um, I think he's a true competitor. I don't think he would have uh, alerted the team that he felt any sort of way if this did happen. And I think he continued to play. And I think that's why we saw such questionable decision making from him with the game on the line in the end, uh, you know, the, the rest of the fourth quarter. Like I said, uh, you know, earlier, 100% speculation on my end i'm just trying to find a way that this logically makes sense to me because it wasn't the same garoppolo that we had seen in the entire season um and like you said with 53 minutes of the game he played really well um you might even say he outplayed mahomes and i it looked like he was going to get it done and then the whole lid was just blown off of it and the game went to hell for 49ers, but I think he wasn't himself, and that's what I'm going to stick with. I actually think that uh, he took a really hard hit to the head, and it really altered his his state of mind and his decision-making skills, and that's why we saw some overthrows, some missed checkdowns, some bad reads. Um, that, into addition as to what the Chiefs were doing, let's give them credit here, they were blitzing in the right gaps, getting hands up and passing lanes. And I think it was just too much for him to overcome. And uh, ultimately, it proved to be you know fatal for the 49ers. Um, going back to the defense real quick, Anthony. We've spoken about Bosa pretty much throughout this whole podcast. Like we've said before, he had 12 pressures, which is ridiculous for a rookie. Was he the best player on 49ers defense Sunday? Shoot, dude, I would say he's the best player on the team. I think PFF said that he's the first, I think the first player in Super Bowl history for as long as they've been recording to ever even record double-digit pressures in the Super Bowl. That's astonishing, man. Absolutely astonishing. And if he would have been held, held H-E-L-D as much as he was in the Super Bowl, which they didn't call, by the way, he probably would have had more sacks and he probably would have had even more pressures. But hey, I'm not going to rant about that. So instead, I will just rant about how well Nick Bosa played. Dude, he was getting Eric, he was giving Eric Fisher the absolute work. He was taking his lunch money. He was taking his dinner money. He was taking his breakfast money. He was taking his savings. I can go on, man. Nick Bosa is an absolute stud. And again, I will vouch for this dude and say he was the best player on the field, period, in the game. Even better, honestly, even better than Mahomes, even better than Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey. That's how single handedly impactful he was. If Nick Bosa isn't on this team, who knows if Mahomes is pressured as much as he is, even with D Ford and even with Buckner. So I got to give it to Bosa, man. 
Bosa played like a beast and we saw the video of him crying on the sideline and it's like oh, it was so heartbreaking man and I don't really tear up or choke up much but when I saw that even I was like I, I was getting kind of worked up dude I was like no way Bosa and you know he worked his ass off for that and to get to that moment to be so close to the Super Bowl and be literally six minutes away obviously in, in game time it's like 20 minutes but six minutes away from being Super Bowl champions, it's God, dude. I, I almost want to say it's unfair. It's really unfair, but you can blame all you want. At the end of the day, the team still has to come through, even through, even with bad referees, and they just didn't. They just didn't, man. But I got to give it to Bosa. Bosa was an absolute monster, and I'm just very happy he's on this team, dude. I'm glad he's not in the Cardinals. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you there. He was definitely the best player on the field at all times. Um, up until, you know, Mahomes kind of took over the game, the end of the fourth quarter. But he was so disruptive and just was really, really impacting the game for the 49ers. And he was pretty much putting the 49ers defense on his back. And I think that's why you saw him so emotionally affected after the game. Um, man, it, it, it broke my heart. I'm not going to lie. Seeing him just break down in tears. Uh, something about watching another grown man cry really, really gets to me, but you can just really see how much this meant to the team and that they really did put their all and their heart and their soul into this game and into the season. And unfortunately they came up on the short end this time, but I have no doubt in my mind that, uh, they're competitors and they'll be back soon. But yeah, going back to my original question, Bosa was the best player for the 49ers on Sunday. And it sucks that um, due to missed calls, holding, whatever you want to call it, the stats won't be able to show that. Sticking with the defense, Uncle Sherm, Richard Sherman, he was beat a couple times by those speedy Kansas City wide receivers. Do you think it was an age thing, something that he's kind of not the same Sherman? Or do you think it was just a bad matchup and he doesn't necessarily uh, match up well with speedy, shifty wide receivers that the Chiefs have? So at this point in his game, obviously he's not as fast as he used to be. I think that plays a role. But one thing that Aikman was saying that beats Sherman is that inside release that Sammy Watkins got on him. And they had, I don't remember if they showed the play, but Aikman talked about it, was that the same play in the Packers game where Devontae Adams toasted Sherman. It was that inside release where Sherman barely got hands on him and Devontae Adams just ran a go and outran him, point blank. And the same thing happened with Sammy Watkins. He got an inside release, fantastic footwork, and just got past Sherman and just beat him. And I think a lot of that is just technicality on Sherman. I think if Sherman plays that inside release better, it's a different story. And I, because th- I don't have a doubt in my mind that Sherman not can can't run stride for stride with Watkins, but I definitely think he could at least keep pace with him. And he would have been a lot closer to Watkins had he not gotten beat because of the inside release. But overall, I don't know. I don't want to knock Sherman because Sherman's been fantastic all season, even though he hasn't really faced speedy wide receivers. But overall, I don't really believe that Sherman is washed or Sherman's done. And it's it's we're going to see what happens to him when he reaches his age 31 season now. Obviously, last year of his contract, I think, too. So he has a lot to prove. But he talks a lot of shit, and he's been backing it up all season. And I think he can continue to do that. But at the same time, he's a couple years removed from the Achilles injury. He is getting older. And that age 30, 31 season is like a brick wall to most of these football players. So we'll have to see how Sherman bounces back from it. But overall for this game, I think the speed gave him problems. But for the most part, I think he was able to adapt and adjust and really, really contain all those fast guys for the most part. Yeah, um, I really think it's a little bit of both. I think that due to his age, it's just simply a bad matchup. Um, he, you saw him against the Vikings wide receivers and uh, even even the Packers wide receivers. He got beat once, but he, I think he definitely matches up better against uh, slower, bigger, more physical wide receivers that he can kind of body 
and that he doesn't have to worry about them getting behind him. And I think that that just kind of plays into his style a bit more, uh, more so than chasing down receivers and constantly have to worry about where they're going to cut, where they're going to go, if they're getting behind him. Um, I think that at this stage in his career, he's not able to keep up with guys like Tyreek Hill or Sammy Watkins, Nicole Hardman. They're simply too fast for him. Um, unfortunately, you know, that that's just how it is. He was, you know, one of the best, if not the best corner in football this year, but that's just not his strength. He's just not going to go line up against that and win, you know, more, more often than not. And, you know, maybe a switch to safety is in the cards for him. I know he spoke to, I believe it was David Lombardi earlier in the year. And he said that at the end of his career, he would be willing to do that. But I don't think that he's viewing this as the end of his career yet. And I think he still has some more years um, where he's playing at a really high level at cornerback. Now, we're going to start wrapping it up here, Anthony. If you could change one single thing, one single play, one single call, uh, one single, you know, anything about the Super Bowl, but just one, what would you change? Wow, you're really making this hard for me, dude. You're about to make me cry on this podcast going down <laughs> going down memory lane right now. But if I had to change any one thing, I almost want to laugh and say Garoppolo's first interception, but I mean, he got a touchdown after it, and he's really good after those first interceptions, apparently. But it, it scares me to say if Garoppolo hits that deep throw to Sanders because – even if they scored a touchdown, I don't know how much confidence I have in the defense up at that point. And even if the defense was tired, dude, they were still kind of getting burned more or less. So if I had to change any one play, any one thing, I think it was it had to be that third and 15 that Buckner and Bosa and Armstead honestly got held really bad where Mahomes rolled out near the end zone and what almost could have been a safety he hit, I think, Tyreek Hill or, or Kelsey or whoever it was for like 20 yards downfield. And it, it's just one of those things where it's never one of those, it could dramatically alter the game if the referees call that penalty or, you know, versus them missing it. And obviously they missed it. And who knows what would have happened. And I think that at that point, it was still 20 to 10. And yet they missed that and they score a touchdown. And all of a sudden we got a game again. So if I had to credit any one thing that I would love to change, it would definitely be that third and fifteenth. That's a good one. Uh, that that's that would have been a huge game changing moment for both teams, and one can only look back on it and just think, what if, <laughs> if that was able to go in the 49ers' favor? I know you kind of mentioned the deep shot to Sanders, but like you said. There was still there would still be some time on the clock, and then it would be up to the defense to prevent the Chiefs to you know holding them to a field goal at least. And the way that game was going, they weren't really able to stop them. You know, call it bad calls, call it non calls, call it just the way that the Chiefs were playing. Whatever it was, I think I'd have to go with the first half bomb to Kittle. And you're probably thinking it's so inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. But I'm choosing that play because one, who knows if they're able to get a touchdown and then go into half up 17-10, at very worst up 13-10. And then not only that, but the momentum. They would have had all the momentum going into the second half. Uh, Who knows if they're able to come out, get another score right away. So I think that that play really messed with their psyche and just kind of pretty much gave them an indicator of what was to come (laughs) as far as how it was going to be called. Cause man, that was such a tic tac call on Kittle. I couldn't believe that they called that. It just, that one, that one specifically, I think I'd have to change just because it, it, it altered so much. Um, even though you might think it was not a huge play in the grand scheme of things, I think it had a lot to do with the final outcome of the game. Um, if you had to size up the 49ers window, as far as Super Bowl championship, you know, um, likelihood, how open is it going into the next couple of seasons? So when I was looking at this question, I was thinking, man, how open is it really? 
And you hear a lot of people talk about, well, Nick Mullins, Nick Mullins would be good in this system, just like Garoppolo, and Beathard under another season would be just like Garoppolo, and blah, blah, blah. And it's all in the eye of the beholder, dude. Whatever you see in those quarterbacks, that's fine. But there's a reason why Garoppolo is starting. So overall, I think the window, if if Jimmy Garoppolo has this like meteoric rise in his twenty age 29 season, because a lot of people have been saying, this is his ceiling, this is who he is, I know this, I know that. And it's like, bro, you guys don't know nothing because it's still his first season. We don't know what his ceiling is. It's his first full healthy year under this Kyle Shanahan system. And you look at the jump Matt Ryan made from his first season to his second, and that was an MVP. And obviously he had Julio Jones and Sanu and then Devontae Freeman. And, you know, we may not have those kind of weapons, but Shanahan's system is still fantastic. So we still got to see what Garoppolo's ceiling really is in the system because I think it's unproven. But overall, I would, to stay on the safe side, I would give it at least five seasons. Nowadays, with modern medicine and health, quarterbacks don't really regress like they used to because, let's face it, medicine saves these guys. Proper care, proper ways to take care of your body really helps the league as a whole. So I don't see Garoppolo really dropping off much until, say, age 33 season. And a lot will be said because his contract will be way up by then. I think it'll be up in the next two seasons. So we got to see what happens. But right now, if uh, and this is going off of if they do re-sign him at some point, I would give him like a five-year window. I think the defense, the defensive core will be together for a good amount of time. The offensive core is still has some pieces, but it still needs to be established a little more outside of Kittle and Debo and maybe Mostert. But overall, I think they have they have the whole unit to contend for the next four to five seasons, and with or without a good or bad quarterback. So it all really depends. It all depends on how you see it. But and and I'm going off of if they hold on to Garoppolo. So if they do, I can definitely see five five good seasons at the minimum. Okay, um, I like that. I think for me. Right now, as it stands, without any of the, you know, draft picks, free agents, we can't predict that right now. I would say they have three to four seasons, um, at best, and at worst, probably another one to two seasons, at absolute worst. As as at this roster is right now, um, if they don't sign any of the free agents that are that are leaving. And with nobody else coming in, I think that's what I'd have to go with. But obviously, we know that's not going to happen. Um, but I, I do think, like you said, Garoppolo, this was only his first full year as a starter. Uh, him moving into his second season, a uh, season with Kyle Shanahan's system under his belt. Guys like Debo, George, you know, um, even Dante per- perhaps could get back into the, into the mix. Um, I think this offense is going to take a big step forward next year in addition to whoever they draft. And don't forget, Jalen Hurd and possibly even Trent Taylor will be back. Um, these guys, I think Hurd, at the very least, is going to make a huge difference um, in the way this offense operates. So that's just something to keep an eye on. But as far as right now, I'd say from worst one to two seasons and best, uh, two to three, three to four, possibly most. But I think that the 49ers, I think they have a nice shot coming up right now. They're young, they're hungry, they're healthy. And I think that as long as, you know, nothing drastically changes, they have a good shot at being back in the in the big game next year. Now, in order to get there, Anthony, what moves do they need to make to make sure that not they only not only get there, but they win the championship next time? Well, we could do a whole other podcast about this, and we will at some point. But to keep it simple, I think they need to go after another corner. Sherman's age was kind of showing. Mosley still has a lot of work to do, and K1 can only be good for so long. Obviously, Witherspoon is an unknown. So definitely find another established corner or draft another corner. Secondly, address the interior offensive line. They need Rickberg. Garland was good, but Garland isn't Rickberg, bottom line. And Mike Person was getting whooped all day by Chris Jones. And I know Chris Jones is a top five D tackle, 
but the point being is that person really stood no chance. So address the interior line, and in my opinion, lastly, even with Jalen Hurd and Trent Taylor coming back, we still don't know if they can stay healthy. We don't know what's up with Dante Pettis. Debo Samuel is the only standout. Who knows if Kendrick Bourne is going to come back. And Emmanuel Sanders is walking as well. So a lot of a lot of things to address. But overall, to keep that window open, find yourself another corner, address the interior offensive line, and maybe look for another playmaking wide receiver as well. Man, you, you literally took the positions that I have written down on my notepad. I think interior offensive line is crucial like you said they were getting manhandled the whole game but also you know a left tackle I think Joe Staley who knows how much longer he's gonna play I think they need to find somebody and groom him I don't know if the plan is to move uh Big Mike over there once he retires but then if so then you still need a uh, right tackle so I just think that that's somewhere that they need to address offensive line in general secondary wide receiver and then also I think to kind of make this offense take the next step um, you saw the 49ers were extremely successful back when they had Vernon Davis and Delaney Walker I think if they had another pass catching tight end to pair with George Kittle ooh, man this this offense would be scary I don't think any defense would want to go up against it so I think those positions a need that they need to address in order to get over the hump and just to ensure that if they get back to the Super Bowl, they win it. Now, Anthony, this is going to be kind of tough. I know, like you've said, a lot of kind of these questions you've uh, mentioned, we can go into a whole podcast on them. But in a couple sentences, three to four sentences, give me your final thoughts on the 2019 49ers season. Well, before I started doing this podcast, you know, I joined nothing but Niners, and that's been hell of an experience already. But I went from like 200 followers to like almost 1,200 and one full football season, and it's been one hell of a ride already. To to many of you guys who don't know, I'm a journalism and communications major, so sports writing is my dream. Sports talk is my dream, and I love it. I genuinely love it, and. Quite frankly, I'm in love with talking about the Niners because it's just a lot of fun and it's a lot of fun to interact with you and all the people that we talk to, negative or positive, it doesn't matter. But And I know this is four or more sentences and I'm sorry, but I just want to hit to the point that I'm really grateful for this opportunity. It's been a hell of a ride. It's been a lot of fun. And even though they lost, man, it's been a hell of a journey. And it's time for a busy offseason, dude. There's still a lot of work to do. We have a lot to look forward to, in my opinion, and I can't wait till we get into it, dude. The the offseason's only just beginning, and we sure as hell are going to be ready and be right on it. Yeah, man, this is the first season that we had the Red and Gold Standard podcast up, and we really appreciate you guys tuning in, uh, the followers that we do have on Twitter, all the subscribers that we do have. We want to thank you guys for that. But this season was... It was one to remember um, for a 49ers fan coming off of a a pretty down year, um, going from the second pick to essentially six minutes away from winning the Super Bowl. Not a lot of people expected that. I feel like on Twitter, even some of the most diehard 49ers fans I know were expecting at best uh, a wild card appearance and that they likely wouldn't win it. So man, this team proved a lot of people wrong. Um, unfortunately they weren't able to prove everybody wrong, but I'm still extremely proud of them. And it was just an amazing season, an amazing year full of comebacks, full of great wins. Uh, the first win in Seattle since I was like a junior in high school. So that's just something to marvel at. And, you know, this year made me even more so proud to call myself a 49ers fan. Um, So I'm just extremely excited to see where the future takes this team. And I, like I said, I couldn't be more proud to be a 49ers fan and a member of the faithful and even more proud to host this podcast with you. You know, we've become pretty good friends and I'd like to think that this podcast, obviously football helped us bond and united us in the first place. So, you know, I'm I'm grateful for all these things. So I think we're going to wrap it up here. Anthony, do you have any final words before we go ahead and and, uh, call this one? As always, guys, 
Thank you so much for the ride. Keep up with us on Twitter. My handle, to close it out, Perry underscore 49ers. That's P-E-R-R-Y underscore 49-E-R-S. All right. And you guys can find me on Twitter at Zach Hernan. Follow the podcast at RGS Pod. Um, you can follow 49ers Hive at 49ers Hive. And if you are listening on uh, iTunes, please do us a solid. Go ahead and leave us a review. We read all of them. We really appreciate them. And, you know, we really want to thank you guys for our first year doing this podcast. Like we said earlier, um, we hope to have many, many more years covering the 49ers with you guys. And hopefully next year will be the year that we get that sixth ring and we can all celebrate it as one giant 49ers family. Thanks for tuning in, guys.